Hello, welcome to Beauty in the Arts, a podcast where we discuss beauty as the most excellent story of God's love and explore the arts as our witness and participation in that love. I'm your host, Sherry Dragovich, the head of the Beauty and Arts Ministry at St. John Lutheran Church. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Today's episode is all Narnia-themed. If you're a member of St. John, hopefully you know that the Beauty and Arts Ministry is inviting our entire church family to a year-long reading of all seven of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, together throughout 2023. We're beginning with The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the first book in the series that Lewis wrote, but not the first book chronologically in Narnia world time. We'll talk more about why I chose to order the books the way I did in a later episode. For now, I hope you'll just trust me and go find a copy of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and start reading. Or if you'd rather download the audiobooks, then do that and listen. Just be sure that when you download uh, the audiobook, make sure it's an unabridged version, not a dramatic adaptation of the stories, as there are those out there. If you're listening to the podcast and you aren't a member of St. John, we'd love for you to join in. Many of the podcast episodes will focus on Narnia throughout this year, so it ought to be pretty easy for you to join in and follow along. And if you live in the Roanoke area, we'd love for you to join us in our Narnia nights. These will happen four times throughout the year. They're going to be a really fun fellowship nights of food, discussion, and art making, all centered around themes from the books as we're reading them. So I've thought a lot about how to walk us into this magical world of Narnia. Do I devote an episode to the author, C.S. Lewis himself, basically offer many biography of his life? It's true, understanding Lewis's life, his growing up, his conversion to Christianity, his profession, which we will get into a little bit today, are all incredibly helpful in understanding why Lewis wrote Narnia as he did, both overall and even certain details within each story. Or should we dive right into the stories themselves? I mean, this is what I really want to do, right? Start talking about poor Edmund and wise Professor Kirk, the land of Narnia, sweet Mr. Tumnus, who couldn't betray Lucy's arrival to the, to the White Witch, and on and on. But let me go at today from another angle. Let me give you some time to get into Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe before I start talking about the story. And to be sure, we will most certainly be learning a lot about C.S. Lewis, the man, as we read through the books themselves. So let's instead talk about fairy stories. This is what Lewis's other name for fantasy stories was. And let's talk about how fantasy stories or fairy stories differ from allegories. Why is this important? Well, Knowing the difference between a fantasy and an allegory and which kind of stories Narnia are will absolutely determine how you come to these stories and engage with them. We can easily murder a beautiful story by trying to dissect it for all the meaning in it the way the author never intended. I, and I do think this is a, a problem in our modern day, ten, it's a modern day tendency for us. And it has been to our detriment as readers, as citizens, and as humans. So what is an allegory? What is a fairy story? And which one is Chronicles of Narnia? Let's begin with allegory. My American Heritage Dictionary calls allegory A, a representation of abstract ideas, 
principles by characters, figures, or events in narrative, dramatic, or pictorial forms. B, a story, picture, or play, employing such representations. Example, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Another thing I did was look up in my Oxford thesaurus. Sometimes I like to understand the layers of a word's meaning, not necessarily its exact definition, by looking up its synonyms. So my Oxford Writer's Thesaurus lists the following synonyms for allegory. Parable, metaphor, symbol, emblem. So to allegorize something is to take an abstract idea and personify it. There must be a one-to-one ratio of correspondence in the allegory between religious and philosophical concepts and the characters, events, or objects in the story. This is what we see Bunyan doing in Pilgrim's Progress. Every character, event, and object in the story, from Christian and his burden to the giant of despair, all directly correspond to theological ideas found in the Bible. Jesus' parables can be considered allegorical in nature. I think we see it best in his parables recorded in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds. I say this because in each of these, after Jesus gives the parable, he explicitly maps out for his disciples what type of person or big idea each aspect of the parable represents. There, Here we see a one-to-one correlation in each part of the story and what it is meant to say, represent, mean, and tell us or teach us. A fantasy story or a fairy story, on the other hand, is meant to be a a story first and a story in totality. Any similarities we might find between characters, situations, places, and events in the story, and those big ideas or personalities we find in other places, like the Bible, are just that. They're similarities. And they are probably even purposeful similarities. As we will see, Lewis absolutely meant for Narnia to be about Christ. He wrote as much in one of his letters to a young reader. And Aslan is the Christ of Narnia. But there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between the two. And while Narnia is a world in need of redemption, just like our world is, we should never try and shove Narnia into our world's form. It has its own form, its own hierarchies, and its own rules in which the inhabitants and the visitors of that world live by. And while its salvation through Aslan is quite similar, it isn't exactly the same, and it shouldn't be treated as as though it should be or it ought to be this way. Lewis was very adamant on this point in the Narnia books, being a work of fantasy and not allegory. In a letter to one of his young readers, Sophia Storr, who was asking Lewis how he came to write the books, he responded, When I started The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, I don't think I foresaw what Aslan was going to do and suffer. I think he just insisted on behaving in his own way. This, of course, I did understand, and the whole series became Christian. But it is not, as some people think, an allegory. That is, I don't say... Let's represent Christ as Aslan. I say, supposing there was a world like Narnia, and supposing like ours, it needed redemption, let us imagine what sort of incarnation and passion and resurrection Christ would have there. See? 
Miss Storr was not Narnia's only reader who asked about the Narnia stories being allegories. It seems over and over again readers wanted to know if Aslan equaled Jesus. Here's another answer Lewis wrote to a group of fifth graders in 1954. You are mistaken when you think that everything in the book represents something in this world. Things do that in Pilgrim's Progress, but I am not writing that way. I did not say to myself, let's represent Jesus as he really is in our world by a lion in Narnia. I said, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia and that the Son of God, as he became a man in our world, became a lion there. And then imagine what it would what would have happened. If you think about it, you will see that it is a quite different thing. This can seem a bit confusing because while Lewis is emphatic in saying Aslan doesn't equal Jesus, Aslan is the Christ figure in the Narnian series. And Lewis is just as emphatic in saying that the Narnian stories are about Christ. In a letter to a girl named Anne in 1961, one of the last letters he wrote in his life, actually, Lewis tells her this, the whole Narnian story is about Christ. That is to say, I asked myself, supposing, there's that word supposing again, that there was really a world like Narnia and supposing it had, like our world, gone wrong and supposing Christ wanted to go into that world and save it as he did ours, what might have happened? The stories are my answer. Since Narnia is a world of talking beasts, I thought he would become a talking beast there as he became a man here. I pictured him as a lion there because A, the lion is supposed to be the king of beasts. B, Christ is called the Lion of Judah in the Bible. And C, I've been having strange dreams about lions when I began writing the work. The whole series works out like this. This is Lewis still writing to her. The magician's nephew tells the creation and how evil entered Narnia, the lion, etc., the crucifixion and resurrection. Prince Caspian, restoration of the true religion after corruption. Horse and his boy, the calling and conversion of a heathen. The voyage of the Don Treader, the spiritual life, especially in Reepicheep. The silver chair, the continuing war with the powers of darkness. The last battle, the coming of the Antichrist, the ape, the end of the world, and the last judgment. Just reading those gets me really excited about all we're going to experience this year in Narnia. I'm just, I can't wait. But let's go back to this letter and, and this word that Lewis keeps using over and over. It's this word suppose. It's so key for Lewis. It's so key for any really good writer who comes at a work of imagination, uh, work of fiction, or imaginative writing at all, they begin with suppositions, and, and Lewis was no different. When Lewis was thinking of writing his Narnia story, he started with a supposition. In fact, before he began with a supposition, he began with an image, that of a fawn carrying packages in a snowy wood. In his short essay, It All Began With a Picture, Lewis writes, all my seven Narnian books began with seeing pictures in my head. At first, they were not a story, just pictures. The lion began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. This picture had been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day, when I was about 40, I said to myself, 
let's try to make a story about it. At first, I had very little idea how the story would go, but then Aslan came bounding into it. I think I had been having a good many dreams of lions about that time. Apart from that, I don't know where the lion came from or why he came, but once he was there, he pulled the whole story together, and soon he pulled the six other Narnian stories in after him. Once Lewis began linking his different images together and supposing about them and the world they lived in, naturally, a story took shape. Because Lewis was an innate lover of mythology and fantasy stories from the time he was young, his favorite childhood books were those of Talking Animals by Beatrix Potter, E. Nesbitt, and Graham Greene. And as a medieval scholar, by profession, naturally, the stories presented as fairy stories. As Aslan bound onto the scene, as Lewis says, and Lewis was working through his suppositions about Narnia, naturally, the stories became Christian. But never in a way that would allegorize them or cause them to be anything less than first, last, and in between a story and a fairy story. Speaking of stories, let's talk a little bit about the power of story. As a form, Lewis was thoroughly committed to the superiority of the story for growing one's ability to make meaning of the world and his or her experiences in it. In an early essay, Lewis wrote, quote, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Lewis believed that stories offered a bridge between the two ways of knowing reality, that is, thinking about it and experiencing it. Thinking about reality is completely abstract. Experiencing is fully concrete. The more we are engaged in the one, the more we cut ourselves off from the other. In his book, God in the Docks, Lewis writes, as thinkers, we are cut off from what we think about. As experiencers, we do not clearly understand what we are experiencing. The more lucidly we think, the more we cut off. The more deeply we enter into reality, the less we can think. You cannot study pleasure in the moment of the nuptial embrace, nor repentance while repenting. Lewis's belief is that thinking and experiencing can only come together in one place, a good story. A good story offers its readers the gift of concrete experiences of a universal. Because story is a work of imagination, we get to imaginatively enter into the story alongside our characters and experience what it is they are experiencing, but always with our minds of reasoning engaged. So we might both contemplate and enjoy a reality we either know something about in a new way or be introduced to a whole new reality as the author believes it would benefit us to know. Paul Ford, in his introduction to his book, Companion to Narnia, which if you really want to geek out on Narnia this year, I highly recommend buying this book. Uh, you will, um, there is no end to what you can learn and um, discover and explore uh, with the Narnian world. Paul Ford does an excellent job in it. But he explains it this way. One can reason about or look at another's experience all day and be able only to abstract about it. 
It is only when we look along that person's experience, if not actually, at least in our imaginations, that we can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear what that person is experiencing. Now, as to the fairy tale genre within the story form, Lewis was obviously biased, given, as I mentioned earlier, his childhood reading loves and his medieval scholar life's work. But besides being biased, Lewis truly believed that it was the fairy tale that would best communicate what he was trying to say through the Narnian stories. In his essay, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What's to Be Said, that's a funny title, isn't it? Lewis defends his statement by first describing the 16th century idea that a poet's role, by which was meant all imaginative writers, was to please and instruct. This, by the way, was also the very first principle I was taught with regards to children's literature when I was studying for my master's degree in humanities and English literature. All children's literature ought to teach and delight, and in so much that it excels in both is the measure of its worth. What Lewis does with this idea of please and instruct is make a distinction, is play off of a distinction made by the Italian poet Tasso of the same 16th century era, who said, the poet, as a poet, is concerned solely with pleasing, but every poet is also a man and a citizen. In that capacity, he ought to and would wish to make his work edifying as well as pleasing. Lewis uses Tasso's idea to examine his own motivations for writing, saying there are usually two reasons for writing an imaginative work, the author's reasons and the man's. The author's mind bubbles up with material for a story, says Lewis, that leads to nothing unless it is accompanied with the longing for a form, a verse or a prose, a short story, a novel or a play. When these two click, the author's impulse is complete. It is now a thing alive and pawing to get out of the author and into the world. This is where the man must have his turn at the thing. He will need to put his critical eye on it. He'll need to examine it from every point of view, decide if gratifying the author's impulse will fit into the other things he wants and ought to be doing. The author's itch is the desire, and of course, like every other desire, needs to be criticized by the whole man. Why is Lewis in this essay taking all this time to share with us his personal examinations on how he decides to write or not to write? Author's reasons versus man's reasons. Almost like he has these imaginary figures, one on each shoulder, arguing in his ear every time he thinks he has a story or work of writing to, to bring forth. But that's not really that crazy. I mean, we all do this when it comes to making decisions involving our desires. Well, at least we should. So what Lewis is leading up to in his whole two reasons for writing is his way of helping readers, helping us, and, and to explain to us how and why, after decades of writing for adults, either scholarly works within his field, Christian apologist writings for which he'd become known for, why he thought to write fantasy stories for children, especially given the fact he had no children of his own and he didn't begin writing the Narnian stories in earnest until he was well into his 40s. I think Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe was published um, when he was nearly 50. 
and why, most importantly, it was the fairy story form that could accomplish best what he was trying to write or what he was trying to say. Another way of saying this might be why the fairy story was the answer to all of his supposing. So to finish up here and answer this, I want to read you this section of Lewis's essay. It's three paragraphs, about a page and a half of reading. He starts by refuting again the notion that he wrote Narnia as an allegory. Then he discusses his whole internal author versus man conversation he had with himself in deciding to take up writing the Narnian stories. Finally, he goes through the benefits of the fairy story for, here comes the famous watchful dragon quote, listen for it. Uh, it's the stealing past the watchful dragons of old religious obligations we feel, especially as children, that we ought to believe about God, but really don't. So I'm going to read this to you. He says, let me now apply this to my own fairy stories. Some people think that I began by asking myself how I could say something Christianly to children, then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for, then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out, quote, allegories to embody them. This is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write in that way at all. Everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't even anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. It was part of the bubbling. <coughs> then came the form. As these images sorted themselves into events, i.e. became a story, they seemed to demand no love interest and no close psychology. But the form which excludes these things is the fairy tale. And the moment I thought of that, I fell in love with the form itself. Its brevity, its severe restraints on description, its flexible traditionalism, its inflexible hostility to all analysis, digression, reflections, and gas. I was now enamored of it. Its very limitations of vocabulary became an attraction. As the hardness of the stone pleases the sculptor or the difficulty of the sonnet delights the sonneteer. On that side, as author, I wrote fairy tales because the fairy tales seemed the ideal form for the stuff I had to say. Then, of course, the man in me began to have his turn. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition, which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God? or about the sufferings of Christ. I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings, and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it was something medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. 
could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. I think this is an excellent place to bring our discussion of the differences between allegory and fantasy and how we ought to come to Chronicles of Narnia clearly as a fairy story. I also think Lewis's thoughts above give us much to consider as to the beauty and worthwhileness of making fiction a part of our regular routine. Beautiful fiction. And, you know, inevitably that might involve uh, happening upon not so beautiful fiction in order to learn and tell the difference. Finally, I hope this entire discussion has helped you see C.S. Lewis not only as an author, but as an image bearer, bearing the image of his Savior. This man was so enthralled with the love of Christ that he couldn't help but work to reveal that love to millions more by way of writing a story about fawns, dragons, talking beaver, and a lion king who bound on the scene and naturally sacrificed himself so the world he created and in need of redemption might be saved. So again, if you haven't started reading Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe yet, get going. Go find it at your library, purchase it, find it at the store online, or go download and listen to an audio version. Just remember, be sure if you do this, it's an unabridged version. For those of you who are quick readers, I highly encourage more than one reading, or even reading and then listening. On the next several episodes of Beauty and the Arts, I'll be diving into the book itself. I'll try to give spoiler alert warnings at the beginning of the episodes with chapters we'll be discussing, just in case you're not that far into the book and you don't want uh, to be spoiled by what I'm going to talk about. Finally, for everyone listening who is local, put February 15th on your calendar. This will be our first Narnia night. And be looking for more information as it becomes available in our church family, weekly email updates, and in Sunday announcements. And of course, listen in on the podcast here as well. Thank you all for listening today. I hope you found the discussion about uh, fantasy and allegory and the beauty of story itself edifying to your soul as well as to your mind. Until then, the Lord bless you and keep you all. May you feel the warmth of his beautiful face shining upon you, lifting you into the fullness of his peace. Amen. Amen.